0: Thank you for these people here. Um, Ask, Lord, that your spirit would be within each one of us. That you would make us uh, receptive to the things that you're teaching us. Not necessarily the words coming out of my mouth, but how you minister to us in a supernatural way. Ask, God, that uh, you would give grace to the words I'm saying, that they would be received rightly and uh, for those things that I Say in a wrong manner, or, or how I say those are wrongly received. I ask for forgiveness for those things and for people to uh, acknowledge that I'm just a man as well. In Jesus' name, Amen. James chapter 4 So where we are starting. Uh, going to start with verse 1. Have you ever noticed um, there are times that we're we're harder to get along with than other times? With that in mind, the sermon is over. And and sometimes we, we seem to want to get into an argument. What causes that? And have you ever noticed that some people in extended families or in church seem to want to argue or quarrel? Why is that you know, see, I have extended family that likes to quarrel, and do any of you have family like this that they like to quarrel? Yeah. That's because we're related no. um they look for something to fight about, and it's so lame. you know one little comment turns into a fight, and sometimes one person in the family keeps taking jabs at somebody else until they're kind of baited into a fight. It's just really odd i I have relatives like this. I'm not going to mention names, but I have relatives like this that just keep on wanting to poke, 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 poke until they get somebody into the fight. And and James wants us to realize that such things happen. And he wants us to, uh, wants to help get us out of such behavior when this type of uh, behavior arises from our hearts. And he will first point to its source and then he's going to show us practical ways to get out of such behavior. So verse one. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that warn your members? See, our selfish desires cause dissension among us. And we can't get what we want and we fight and we even kill for it. And that's usually the source of war in the broader sense, isn't it? One nation wants one, uh, what another one has and goes to war to get it. It's greed. And greed gets the best of people and it corrupts them. And individually, we, we go to war to get what we want. And sometimes people go to war in church trying to get their way on a certain issue or or on the direction of the church, and it causes strife and, and causes this kind of disunity within the community. And sometimes these battles among Christians are bitter and severe, so James accurately describes this as wars and fights. And the source of these wars and fights is pretty predictable. The root of it involves some sort of carnality, a carnality that is a war in itself inside a believer in relation to the issues of the lust of the flesh. And if two believers are walking, if they're both walking in the spirit of God in their interactions with one another, they they won't be able to war and fight with one another. They both have a humble character of living faith. And notice that James doesn't seem too concerned with who's right and who's wrong. James seems to be bothered by the selfish attitude and the bitterness of the quarrels. Isn't that interesting? Oftentimes we get so worked up about what's right and what's wrong and we forget to examine where our heart is on the matter. And that's what's really important. What is the condition of our heart towards one another? Verse 2 You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Here, James is describing the types of desires that lead to conflict. You lust and do not have, meaning that our covetousness leads to conflict. You murder, meaning that our anger and our animosity leads to conflict. And I assume that most of James' original readers didn't literally kill someone, but they were exposed to violent teachers like the zealots. We briefly talked about the zealots last week, and we learned how they taught violence, even murder, as an acceptable means of obtaining justice and redistributing wealth to their own Jewish people. Meanwhile, James is a proponent of nonviolence and advocates approaching different circumstances of life with prayer. And when James used the word murder in this verse, he may be well referring to the Sermon on the Mount. And this word is used to express more than an actual killing in that he wants us to look at the inner condition of our heart. And how this is shown outwardly in our anger. Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The word murder is kind of startling, isn't it? I believe James meant to shock us with such a strong words, he, such a strong word. He wanted to force us to realize the depth of evil that's present within us when we have bitter hatred towards one another. And the, the reason these destructive desires exist is because people aren't seeking God. They aren't seeking God for their needs. We don't have what we want because we don't ask God. Or, if we have asked and we haven't received, it can be because the motivations of our heart are wrong. We ask out of pure selfishness. And perhaps we just want so we can satisfy our own lusts, satisfy our pleasures. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasure. A typical Jewish prayer included asking God to supply genuine needs. But to pray based on envy of what others have or, or for status is meant to satisfy a misplaced passion. The verb spend in verse 3 is interesting. It's the same verb used to describe the wasteful spending of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 14. Perhaps destructive desires persist even if we pray because our prayers are self-indulgent and self-centered. And sometimes we don't receive what we pray for right away. And it might be that God is just feeling that we need to wait. But the point being made here is that our selfish requests aren't a priority of God's. Just as we don't give children everything they want if we want them to be healthy children. So God is a good Father. And we as good parents would never refuse our children something they needed, and neither will God. We have to remember that the purpose of prayer isn't to persuade a reluctant God to do our bidding. The purpose of prayer is to align our will with His will and in partnership to ask Him to accomplish His will on earth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The purpose of prayer is never to get our will done. But how often do we think of prayer in this way? Where we feel that God is there to answer our every whim and wish. We're all guilty of it. I've done it. While I was in college and for a few years after I graduated, I prayed for money. And that someday I would be really rich. And yes, I had some desires, many of which can be defined as lusts. But I tried to make a deal with God. I would tell Him how I'd use that money to bring glory to Him. And how I'd, how I'd use it to help the less fortunate. Which, you know, which was my intention. Your intention as well. But you know, my, my motives weren't completely pure. See, my, my mind was filled with desires of where I wanted to live. And what my house would look like, uh, the wife I would have, uh, the cars I wanted to drive, the jet I wanted, the yacht I wanted, the vacation homes around the world, the, the clothing, the dog, the watches, the hobbies. The only things I got were my wife and my dog. But they were the coolest things out of the bunch. So many of our prayers have selfish motives behind them. And oftentimes we don't realize our selfishness. But as we continue to dig at what's behind our prayers, we begin to find out what our true motivations are. And as we ask God to reveal our heart, he will. He's a loving Lord who desires to have us to know our true self. Verse four, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is rebuking the compromise and the covetousness among the church as the bride of Christ. And the original readers of this letter would totally understand this because they had this interesting relationship, an interesting friendship with the world that was closer to this patron-client type of relationship. Meaning that they treasured the world's values even if they were opposed to God's values. They became more dependent on what the world could offer them rather than what God was giving them. Let's define this a little bit more, this client-patron thing. A client was a person who was dependent on a patron in Roman society. They were dependent on the patron socially and taking advice from them. So in essence, this this patron was kind of like buying their allegiance. And the patron was this social superior in the Roman patron-client relationship. And the patron granted favors to the clients and acted as a political sponsor for his clients or his social dependents. So this created this relationship where the client would honor their patron. And they fostered an unhealthy allegiance and dependence to the world rather than to God. So James uses the term adulterers and adulteresses to rebuke them, Old Testament style, right? And this Old Testament vocabulary was easily understood because it instantly pointed to idolatry. God spoke this way in the Old Testament when his people were attracted to some form of idolatry. I'm just going to throw these uh, references out to you. I don't expect you to flip through that. If you do, I'm really impressed. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 16, verse 32. Chapter 23, verse 37. And in the book of Hosea, chapters 1 through 3. And James is telling the church that they are committing spiritual adultery for the love of the things of the world and for the things happening in their heart. That the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church, is being violated. And we are to look to Jesus, not to the world. In 1 Kings chapter 22, the Bible tells us about Jehoshaphat. I love that name, Jehoshaphat. It's just cool to say. Who was a king of Judah, and um, actually a good king, and he sought the Lord. But over in Israel was this wicked and worldly king named Ahab. And in the story, we read that Jehoshaphat went to Samaria to join Ahab in a war against Syria. Ahab's killed and Jehoshaphat is nearly killed and he he runs. And when he returns to Jerusalem, a prophet came to him and rebuked him, saying, should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore, the Lord's wrath is upon you. Jehoshaphat's sin was trying to be a friend to the world. Friendship with the world is hatred to God. Being an enemy of God. We can't be friends with the world that's in rebellion to God and expect God to be pleased with that. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-16 through 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Friendship with the world is when we're disloyal to God. It's when we're caught in our pride and when we're centered on ourselves. And this self-centered attitude and the preoccupation with our personal rights and our personal benefits is the opposite of humility. Verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Holy Spirit within the Christian yearns for our total loyalty, total devotion, friendship, commitment, and love to Him. A Christian who lives in compromise will be convicted by the Holy Spirit because God wants our undivided and exclusive love and won't tolerate any competition. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, and chapter 34, verse 15, tells us that God is an intensely passionate God. He doesn't want to share our loyalty with any false gods or objects, He doesn't want us to have a misplaced devotion. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9, speaks of how the Israelites, even though they were the chosen people of God, the church people of that day, they were disloyal to God and were called adulterers. God had to judge them as such. God knows where our hearts truly are. We can't fool Him, and He knows if we're disloyal to Him. And Jesus brought up the same issue, but applied it to a specific situation. He puts it this way. We can't have two masters. And the two masters were God and money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The same Holy Spirit who convicts us of our compromise gives more grace. He gives us the grace to serve God as we should. But notice that grace is given to the humble. And that's where our hope lies. It lies in our humility. If we remain proud, God opposes us. If we choose humility, then God will abundantly give us grace. He wants to shower upon us grace. See, grace and pride, they can't coexist with one another. My pride demands that God blesses me according to my merits, that I earn it. But grace isn't given to me in that way. Grace isn't given to me based off of anything that I do, whether it's good or bad, but only on the basis of who God is. And it isn't as if my humility earns the grace of God. Humility simply puts me in a position to receive the gift of grace from God. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. We should be people who make an effort towards humility, but not with the mindset that this earns us or entitles us to grace. It seems that James is making reference to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 in this verse. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. One of the problems that we have as believers is that we, we, we're like ancient Israel. We're in this believing community, but we're not really loyal to God. We let our selfish desires lead us to disloyalty to God. And then we aren't submissive to God's sovereign plan for us in our lives. So what are we to do? Verse 7, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In light of the grace offered to the humble, there's only one thing to do. Submit to God. This means to place yourself under God's authority. To surrender to him as your king. And to start receiving the benefits of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And we're not to submit to our selfish desires, but to resist selfishness because it's of the devil. Notice that if we will submit to God and resist the devil, the devil devil will leave. And there's hope in this. For those of you who are struggling with a life of carnality and strife, there's hope. James tells us to resist the devil which means to stand against his lies, his deceptions, his intimidations, which is often difficult to do because he makes things so good, like appealing, right, and attractive. And so we we like it. But in this resistance, we're promised that he will flee from us. So we need to properly view Satan as a conquered foe who who can and must be personally resisted so that we can resist him, that it's possible to resist him. And the word resist comes from two Greek words, stand and against. And James tells us to stand against the devil. How do we resist? Well, first of all, it's important for us to recognize who we're battling against, what we're battling against. We need to recognize the source of the attacks against us. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, oftentimes we can't resist because we don't recognize that we we fight a spiritual battle with our flesh. We try to overcome spiritual things with our flesh, and you can't do that. We need to recognize that and, and that we're in what we're in is a spiritual battle. But once we recognize the source of our problem, then we can begin dealing with it. And then we won't just pass it off as, oh, I'm just in a bad mood or I'm tired or, you know, I didn't sleep well last night or I ate bad Mexican food. Like all these excuses that you have. And once we recognize the battle we're in, we we have to have an intention to resist. And the intention involves a trust in God. A trust that he can do what he says he can do. I trust that He is sovereign, that He has rule over everything, that He is all-powerful, all-knowing. And you have to trust in that. Because if you don't trust in that, there's no way for you to resist. Because there's nothing greater than you to pull you forward. You're going to be set back and just questioning, like, can He really do this for me? So you have to answer all the questions that are in front of you that are making you doubt. And you have to ask those questions and challenge yourself to explore those things so that you can trust. And you have to make a conscious decision to make changes based on his teaching. You have to decide to resist. You have to make a choice to resist. And for some of us, here lies the struggle. It's the decision. How is this possible if we are in Satan's world? You think we're in Satan's world? Yeah, we are. At the present time, this world is under Satan's rule and kingdom. Scary. And the world originally belonged to God through his creation, and for a short time it was ruled by man, since God gave dominion to man. But then man forfeited the world over to Satan when there was obedience to Satan and disobedience to God. So Adam and Eve were no longer in the kingdom of God, but by the exercise of their will to disobey God, the title was transferred to Satan. And in this transfer, they found that there was no way back to the kingdom of God. And from that point, humans became slaves to sin. And the world was ruled by Satan. But then, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And he that believes is not condemned we already know we're no match for the devil by ourselves, as evidenced by Adam and Eve. But we have a defender. We have a protector. Jesus has victory over Satan. We don't, but in Jesus we do. Satan can be sent running by the resistance of the lowliest believer who comes in the authority of what Jesus did on the cross. So that's where we need to turn to when we're confronted with a situation where we want what we know is wrong and we have to go against our own desires. We go to Jesus knowing we have victory over Satan through him. Victory over the things he has put in front of us and over the things we have gotten ourselves into because of the price Jesus paid to redeem us from the bondage of sin and the power of Satan. Jesus made a way for us so that man, by the exercise of his will, could be delivered from the powers of darkness and come into the kingdom of God. And we don't have to fight it alone. Jesus came to die and to redeem us. And God's, God's heart and intention is for us to overcome all the junk in our life. To help us have a victorious life. And God has a deep and a true love for you. And He only wants the absolute best for you. And yes, Satan can offer you the world. But really, it's only so that he can get to your soul. And once there, He looks to destroy it. He's looking to eternally destroy your soul by giving you a few moments of pleasure in this very temporary life. And last week we looked at wisdom. Is it wise to make decisions for a momentary benefit just to discover that the everlasting consequences are disastrous? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 tells us, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And today we have the same decisions to make that Adam and Eve had. What they were confronted with by God and Satan. Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey Satan? To live in the kingdom of God or to live in the kingdom of Satan? And there isn't much that can compare to this wonderful feeling we have when we're able to stand up to the devil, resist the devil, and have him flee from us. It's a great thing. The bad thing is that he comes back. But you have to continue to do that. So, so we can then resist once we've identified who our enemy is, what we're dealing with, intend to resist, decide that we're going to resist, choose to resist. And you can only make that decision if you trust that God is who he says he is. And once we resist, he flees. And here are some pointers to help you out with those of you that are in a, a better place, when you're not in the thick of things. Because when you're in the thick of things, it's, it's really tough and you deal with it what, the way that we just talked about. But to prepare yourself, kind of like out of season. So you recognize it, recognize who God is, and you recognize that it's not all up to you. The actions that you can control, you control those. But God needs to be relied on. He needs to be who you go to. And you have to retrain how you think. And you do this by studying and meditating on Jesus. You saturate your minds with the Gospels. You reflect on how the outcomes of the world differ from those that are handled in a Christ-like manner. And you start visualizing, if I did this the way Christ did, this is how it turns out. If I did this the way I want to, this is how it turns out. And you need to practice being Christ-like when you're not under the gun. The Olympics are right around the corner, right? Do you think those athletes waited until the Olympic trials to start working out? No, they've been practicing for years, right? Before the competition is right in front of their face, they've been practicing. And that's what we need to do as Christians. Before we're caught in the middle of something that is so hard for us to get out of, we need to practice how we're going to live like Christ when things are good. So before we get in a bad place and things get really difficult, we have to practice being good, practice being Christ-like. We need to practice being self-sacrificing. We have to practice being selfless. We need to practice humility so that when those tougher times do come along, I'm ready. I'm ready for that gun to go off. And another thing to do is to learn from people who walk lives that we can see that they're walking Christ-like lives. So whether that's through mentorship or reading of biographies, and, and you know what actually helps me, a really practical thing, is going to court. Not that I'm suing people or people are suing me, but that I go to court. And you're like, you are weird. Like, so, if you're struggling in your marriage, go to divorce court. I think it'll change some things for you. And then after you go to divorce court, go to a, a custody battle for children. I think it's going to change some things for you. And if you want to see the the consequences of sin, go to criminal court. Things are really going to change for you. So I go to court. And then it's free. <laughs> right? You don't even have to pay admission. You just kind of go. So go and there you can see the evil that's present you can see the hate the pride the deception the lies almost any kind of negative thing you can imagine you can see it there and sometimes it's so bad that it's so clear you're like there's no way i'm getting a divorce there's no way i'm putting my kids through that there's no way i'm going to do that to my neighbor and it helps you realize, it helps you see, foresee what's ahead of you and the decisions that you make and what that can cause. And the most important thing is prayer. To continuously and earnestly pray that God will change you so that you can obey Jesus. Verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Here's a call for us to draw near to God. What a beautiful invitation and promise to us. It's of no value to submit to God's authority and then resist the devil's attack and then you fail to draw near to God. You kind of lost it. He invites us to draw near to Him and as we do that, God promises to draw near to us. And if you're far from God right now, He hasn't distanced Himself from you. You've distanced yourself from him. See, there's an elderly couple driving down a road in the truck, and you know it's one of those older trucks, so it has the bench seat that has three seats in the front. And as they're driving around, the wife noticed something different in the other trucks. She noticed that many of the other couples in the other trucks had the same trucks, had the same bench seats in front of theirs, just like theirs. and, And the wife noticed that the wife sat close to their husband. As they drove, and she's like bewildered and wondering, how come that's happening? And Then she asked her husband, why don't we sit that close anymore? Wilbur? And while driving, he looked over and said, Myrtle, it wasn't me who moved. See, if you're far from God, he hasn't moved. Draw near to him. He wants you to draw near to Him. He loves you and He wants you right next to Him. And how do we go about drawing near to God? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This means we stop reaching for the pleasures of the world that contaminate us. And we renew our minds by choosing to be loyal to God's will. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 14, Jeremiah tells us to wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? God wants us to be concerned with Him and with the spiritual things. He knows that the worldly things that tempt us would only leave us dissatisfied. So don't be double-minded about God and the world. And with God's help, we can make the right choices. That's really difficult, isn't it? For some of us, this is precisely our problem, being of double mind having hypocrisy in our lives we have a desire to serve and follow jesus we we actually want the will of god in our lives but there's something on the other side of us or inside of us that wants to go after the things that are of the flesh to indulge our flesh but it's important to act from the peaceful wisdom that god offers and not the hateful wisdom of the devil remember that satan will give you anything to get entrance to your soul he'll give you anything doesn't matter God wants to protect your soul. Verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Isn't it odd that James tells us to lament, mourn, weep, turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom? And this isn't really like a promising Christian message, is it? It's like, no, I don't want that, right? I mean, aren't Christians supposed to have joy, peace, you know, happiness? And it's true that the joy of the Lord is is the goal for us. However, we should mourn and weep over our sin because of what sin does. It has terrible ramifications. And in mourning and in weeping, that's the path to repentance. We're to change our minds and to turn away from sin. And sin can keep a person from accepting the salvation Jesus offers. Sin can keep us from the fellowship with God and living a life that's peaceful and that is filled with rich richness and a dynamic relationship with an almighty God. Sin can keep us from joy, from blessing, from the life that gives us peace and blessings to others. And in the previous verse, it told us to draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, He convicts us of sin. So it's appropriate to lament, to mourn, to weep, as we recognize what Jesus did for us on the cross to cleanse us of our sins. He did that so we can have a relationship with God. And we can't have sin and God. Sin doesn't just affect us, but it also affects others. If a loved one is spiritually lost, we, we feel like mourning for them. Sin is serious, and we need to recognize that. And once we do, we're, we're saddened by it, by anything that someone else is doing that is caught in the clutches of sin and that they can possibly be lost for an eternity. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Humility is the pathway out of sin. You can't go towards repentance if you're proud of your actions, right? And if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then He will lift us up. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not as much raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we come as sinners before a holy God, we will appropriately humble ourselves before God. But if we approach God as a self-righteous religionist, we won't be lifted up because God resists the proud. And grace is given to the humble. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren, He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Humbling ourselves and getting right with God must result in getting right with other people as well. When we're right with others, it'll show in the way we talk about them. And there's no way to be right with God and have hate towards a brother or a sister. There shouldn't be a hateful or slanderous speech towards our brothers and sisters. First John chapter four, verse 20 says, "If someone says, "I love God," and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And when we talk against or judge a brother, a fellow Christian, we've placed ourselves above God's law and made ourselves the judge over the law itself. That's not humility. Remember that humility is the key to God forgiving us. God instructs us to love our fellow Christians. And if we judge our brother or sister instead of loving them, we're putting aside God's law. We're saying that we're smarter than God and above His teaching. We know better. And that's the opposite of humility. When we're in the midst of such arrogance, that's dangerous. Verse 12, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? There's one lawgiver. God is our only judge and lawgiver. He alone is able to save and destroy. And we're not to judge our brother or sister. And when we are judging another Christian, we're judging God's teaching. And if we're judging God's teaching, we're too busy judging and not obeying. And to sit in judgment over God's teaching is the pinnacle of arrogance and the opposite of humility. It's something that we have no authority to do because God alone is the lawgiver. And however high and orthodox our view of God, God's law might be, the failure to actually do it tells the the world that we don't actually value it all that much. There's not much stock put in that for us. And when we have the proper humility before God, it just isn't within us to arrogantly judge our brother or sister. James chapter three, verse 18 tells us that true wisdom brings peace. The thing that brings about strife is arrogance in our judgment. Arrogance thinking that we know best or that we know God's law or that we can make these different calls on different people. And how many of you have gotten into an argument and one of you starts making up your own rules so you can win? I remember when I was a kid and we used to play football in the neighborhood. And when the kid that owned the football was losing, he'd change the rules so that his team can win. Sometimes that was me but very seldom because we were poor. We didn't have money for a football. But arguments like this never end with satisfaction. And once we start making up our own rules and disobeying God's rules, we never come to any solution about our disagreements. We merely try to rationalize our own stands and and our own positions and demand that we're right. And our only hope isn't to make up rules so we can win. We need to follow the Word of God and not interpret things the way that we want to or desire to or hope to have some sort of uh, kind of result. Our only hope is to submit to, the God, to God's rules and at that, then peace can be established. It's not so that we have to win. We have to make sure that God's word wins. That That's, that's what we have to follow. And it takes humility to submit to God and humility to want the truth to come out more than having ourselves vindicated. So let's not fight and war with one another. Let's pray with pure hearts, in a selfless manner, and not be a friend of the world. Let's draw near to God, not speak evil or judge, judge our brothers and sisters. And most of us lack the courage to be this humble. Humility takes great strength. It takes great courage. But it's the way of blessing. And he lifts us up in our humility. So let's submit ourselves entirely to God. Let's pray. Lord, you've clearly told us um, what it takes for you to lift us up. You've instructed us to submit to you, to draw near to you. And in those things, there's wisdom in those things and practical uh, ways to go about doing that. We ask, Lord, that you would show us. For those of us who are in the middle of something that we're struggling with, I ask, God, that uh, you would bless those people with the ability to ask for help and that you would bless our church with the ability to help them, to support them. In humility. Not that we know all the answers or that we... uh, are convinced that we're right. But we know that You are and and we want to direct people to You. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen.